for all women. Hello there. This week's Sunday Chops is brought to you by me, Maddie Hickish. Now, you won't have heard my voice before, um, although I may have chipped in on a previous podcast ages ago, and you might have heard me laughing at the back of one of the Leicester Square Theatre gigs. Uh, but basically, I'm the one that Mickey or Hannah thank at the end of the live shows. I press record and make sure that the um, the podcast and all the wonderful contributions from our guests don't just disappear into the ether. But yes, anyway, I'm here with my own Sunday Chops, which is really exciting and I'm very glad to have been given the opportunity thank you very much um this week we're going to hear from the food writer and cook Ruby Tando who you might also remember from series four of the Great British Bake Off if you haven't come across her work before I should introduce her by saying that Ruby is an absolutely remarkable voice in food writing and just writing about the world in general um, she's written two straight recipe books um, and she's also a columnist and she writes regularly in The Guardian but her latest book is a bit different it's called Eat Up and it's described as a manifesto that celebrates the fun and pleasure in food and it's especially interesting because I feel like it flies in the face of a culture that's taken much of the pleasure and joy out of eating and made it complicated and stressful on that note actually um, the reason we chose to feature Ruby this week is that from the 26th of February to the 4th of March, it is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And this is an issue that's very close to my heart and one that I've only just become a bit more confident talking about, um, despite the fact that it's affected me for a very long time. Um, now, I know I'm not alone in having uh, a complicated relationship with food, and don't get me wrong, like I love to cook and eat and feed other people and learn about food. Uh, but for so long, maybe almost as long as I can remember, it's been mixed up with a lot of anxiety and guilt. And I know a lot of other people feel the same way. And having someone like Ruby, who writes the way she does about food and cooking and encourages us to feed ourselves properly, has been a really important part of learning to change my attitude. Uh, so I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm very keen to say that despite the fact she does write about some very serious subjects, Ruby also writes a lot about very trivial and fun and silly pop culture things that are related to food. And that's one of my favourite things about her book. Anyway... Before we start, I should just say there's loads of these chops to listen to. And if you've missed any of them, let me just point you towards some of my favourites. One of our earliest ones, actually, was with Jen and Judy Murray. And that's well worth a listen. You'll have to scroll back a bit in the iTunes library. Um, And then last week's one with Hannah and Mickey talking to Anne Miller about the best books to read at the moment was really good. And there's some great recommendations in there. So definitely give that a listen as well. Um, If you don't want to miss any in future, I'm going to tell you the obvious. You should definitely click subscribe. And then the latest podcast will just be available on whatever app you listen to us on. And before we start proceedings, I should insist that you rate our podcast five stars, please, um, and review it too if you've got time. And why not recommend it to a human person as well? It really makes a difference to have a lot of positive noise being made about the podcast. Right, so back to Ruby. This interview is in two parts. In part one, we have a Skype conversation about Ruby's philosophy, her thoughts on women and food, on film and cooking. And at the end of the podcast, there's a little bonus track from when Ruby was last down in London and I sent her on a shopping spree in a corner shop. But first, I started off asking her about her new book, Eat Up, and the key policy points of her manifesto. At the heart of it is just this idea that having a good relationship with food is as important, probably more important than, you know, the actual finer details of what food you're eating or when or where. 
I think what I really, really want people to do is to kind of eat what makes them feel good and not worry too much about the million like conflicting viewpoints that are coming at us from all sides. I guess it's quite a hard book to describe because it's sort of a bit of an autobiography. It's a bit of a recipe book and it's kind of polemical as well. Did you know what it was going to be right from the start or did it evolve as you started writing? Um, so what first happened actually was I, I wrote um, an essay about wellness and clean eating, obviously kind of not in favour of those things. And I approached by uh, an, an editor saying, like, would you like to write an anti-clean eating book? And I said, no, um, mm-hmm. I didn't just like... I didn't want to start with a negative. I knew that if I wanted to, if I was going to write a book, I wanted it to be a um, a positive thing, something that I had actually had a message that could stand alone. And so it took a kind of few months of of thinking and letting the idea brew, and that's how eventually it kind of came to this slightly uh, muddled between genres book that kind of. I don't know it's like it's its own funny thing it's brilliant like no one I don't think there's a book like it and I wonder what were your influences who did you take inspiration from in writing about food do you know what what the funny thing is that very very few food writers have actually factored in the writing of this book mm-hmm. you know obviously like I'm surrounded by food writing I love it but the influences that I found myself consulting were movies and like pop music and music videos and things like that these kind of references to food where food isn't at the heart of it food is a storytelling device or food is a metaphor or whatever so I think that kind of really does shed a light on the kind of approach I've taken here it's not about how to cook it's about the ways in which we eat and what food means to us I think that's really interesting and and I think if if listeners look in the bibliography of your book they'll see so many really great like such a mix of cultural references that you drew on Um, I want to talk a bit about you know you write a lot about film in your book Uh, what films did you absolutely have to include when you're writing about food um oh god I mean one of them was Moonlight Mm -hmm. because I I just I don't know there was something so special like about seeing this young man being fed by other people around him you know this is like he's a queer black man and he is allowed this these moments of tenderness where he just opens up and eats and that's a really vulnerable thing and I see I think showing that radical softness was so important within the film and obviously it says a lot about what it means to feed a person and what it means to be fed I think that's the same um in maybe like a less sophisticated way but you also write about chocolat which had <laughs> such a huge impact on me when I first because I read the book and then I watched the film and it's the idea of her is kind of um, a mix between an apothecary and um, a sort of chocolatier. She yeah. like prescribes chocolates to people, which is such a lovely sort of metaphor for what she's like in the village. Yeah. And do you know what? It's actually, um, there are so many links throughout the ages between kind of magic and <laughs> in that similar way. I mean, the idea, like even back to the idea of, kind of turning metals into gold like being an alchemist and then that kind of turns into like apothecary where you're healing people and then obviously pharmacy now and we've come this weird full circle where now obviously people like to see food as a kind of medicine in this like weird semi-magical way in its own right it's all very muddled and it I mean it's clear to me that food doesn't stand alone as a category it's mixed with magic it's mixed with medicine it's all of these things so one thing that really stood out about the book for me uh, was it was written, it really felt like it was written with women at the centre of the picture. It really reflected the experience I've had. And obviously you don't exclude men, but I wondered whether 
was it a deliberate choice to write with women at the very focus of it? Yeah, I think, I mean, to a degree, I think it was very organic uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that, like, I am a young woman. So obviously, for the most part, I'm going to be writing for people who share the, the experience with me. But also, I think that women are way more uh, kind of attacked when it comes to food choices, the way we feed ourselves, the way we eat, than the men are in general in our society today. So I think it was important that I for me that I provided a kind of safe space where you know no matter what shape or size you are whatever you know whatever way you express yourself you are you know it's a space where you can kind of eat what makes you feel good why do you think that happens like what what are we saying to women when we say um you should clean eat you should diet you should avoid this or that like why do we do it I like to use the parallel with sex because I mean obviously food and sex have so much in overlap right in terms of it's to do with appetite and it's to do with bodies and it's to do with what we do and do not consider to be acceptable and I think for women just like with sex we're expected to regulate our appetite for food so you know we're meant to be hungry we're meant to we're meant to keep ourselves alive but not meant to be too like ostentatious about it not meant to let our hunger shine through too brightly so I think it's something that we're really policed in every single day. That's definitely something you notice online. Like, um, you can be a very slim woman and celebrate eating whatever, but as soon as you're not like within that very narrow framework, suddenly you eating is transgressive and um, criticised. Definitely, yeah. And I think, I mean, that was something that was really nervous about when I was writing the book because, do you know what, like, I'm slim in the scheme of things. And obviously, I cannot speak to the experiences of people who are bigger than me. And I didn't want to, like, speak over them either. So, I mean, food is so inherently political. And just as you said, like, I mean, a fat woman eating in public is going to receive way more kind of scrutiny and possibly even attacks than a slim woman eating in public. So it was really important to address that I do not have, like, some definitive viewpoint on this and is that a criticism you've got like because obviously you encourage people to eat what they want and people Mm. could say to you you can eat what you want clearly you're you know you're slim is that a criticism you've actually heard from people I think the thing is like I'm encouraging people to eat what they want but not really in a straightforward like oh just you know like eat chips all day every day sense like what I find really funny is that when I say, like, I'd like you to eat what you want, people immediately see that as, like, okay, ditch the diet, eat burgers all the time. But actually, like, that's very telling of our attitudes to food. So when I say eat what you want, your first thought is, like, oh, my God, finally I can be unhealthy. Yeah, I can you know? eat what I shouldn't, basically. Yeah, yeah. It shows how pathologized our attitudes to food are. Like, it's really messed up. Because when I say well, eat what you want, I don't just mean, like, follow your appetite. I also mean... You know, if, if you're the kid at school who has like, you know, a lunch that other kids say is is smelly because your parents are from some other country, like fucking eat that lunch, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or if you're the fat woman eating in public, you know, like we're here to support you in being able to do that without being attacked. You know that for me, eating what you want is sociological, it's psychological, it's all of these things. And it's not just like, oh, eat jelly babies all day. One of the reasons we've got you on the podcast is that it's Eating Disorders Awareness Week um, from the 26th of February. And your book is so open and accepting about all the kinds of food um, and ways of eating and ways of looking after yourself. But I wanted to ask about your history of um, your relationship with food and where you've come from to get to where you are now. Mm, well, I mean, 
I think part of the driving the motivation for me to write this book was that I've not always had a good relationship with food. Um, when I was a teenager up through till my early twenties, I had, you know, eating disorders in various incarnations and it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult. And you know what? I was never actually diagnosed because I don't think my weight ever dropped quite low enough. And, you know, it, it is a really, really tricky time. I think so many people have eating disorders um, but they don't fit this very limited vision of what an eating disorder looks like, which is to say a very, very thin middle-class white girl. Um, no, it's, it's really limited the way we see things and it stops people from being able to seek treatment. Even, even with, um, people that are diagnosed and um, the NHS reported that a numbers of patients with eating disorders have doubled in the last six years, which mm. is really scary. It's, and especially like it's huge for those under 19, I don't know if it's just because I'm becoming more aware of it, but I do feel like we just get an absolute onslaught of mixed messages about food all the time. Um, it does yeah. seem pretty impossible to get it right, I think. Yeah, it is. Do you know what? Like, I mean, obviously, eating disorders, as with any kind of mental health problem, they, you know, it's a personal thing. It manifests within your own brain. So, like, it's never as simple as, like, size zero fashion causes eating disorders. It's never quite that simple. However these cultures of mixed messages around eating, around bodies, they certainly don't help. And I think one really worrying thing for me is the way that uh, the kind of food cultures at the moment actually co-opt the language of body positivity, food positivity, all of these things, but they use it in ways that actually limit what people can eat. So for example, I've seen clean eating websites, clean eating blogs where They've been like, we want you to like just really truly be yourself. This is not a diet. It's not about losing weight, but also you will end up super slim. And do you know what I mean? It, it's it makes a, it's me a... so angry when I see it. And also, it's yeah. it's so um, privileged and so hard to access for so many people. Um, yes. And it makes healthy eating seem like this kind of very like fancy, exclusive, like beautiful place. Um, it's yeah. really possible. Um, I really yeah. love. Uh, how you speak about it on social media because you're not like shy of confronting those privileged people that promote I don't know veganism or clean eating um mm. it's pretty brave to take some of those people on though um why do you do it um <laughs> I mean like my mum would say that I'm reckless yeah but um I don't know I just I, it really it enrages me because it's something I care about so much so many people I talk to, like, every, literally every single day I'll get messages from people saying, like, oh, I've not been able to eat, you know, whatever food it is in however many years. Like, I've, I feel so anxious around food. And this is so common, even among people who wouldn't consider themselves to have an eating disorder. So when I see some person who has all of the money, all of the privilege in the world spreading this message and getting paid handsomely for it I'm furious as you can imagine I'm quite keen to not obviously you don't say that everyone should just be a carnivore and eat loads of meat or whatever or and you do have quite a lot of nice vegan recipes in your books as well um yeah why why do you think it's dangerous that there's this kind of new propaganda around veganism especially on um, Instagram and Twitter uh I think what really enrages me is this idea that everyone can and should be vegan. I think like in an ideal world, it would be fantastic if everyone was able to do that. Like, great, like genuinely, I, I'm pretty sure it is better for the environment. And certainly it's better to avoid suffering for animals and all of this stuff. However, 
that's not the world we live in. And it is the case at the moment that there are urban food deserts where people don't have access to fresh fruit and veg. There are people with histories of eating disorders for whom restricting their diet could potentially lead to a relapse. There are people with medical conditions like we just it's all it is fantastic if you want to spread the word about veganism or whatever that is great and genuinely i support these people but you cannot tell people that they are failures that they are awful if they're not able to do that because yeah. i mean it's not right and there's a sort of level of scaremongering as well i've noticed recently there's all this chat about ultra processed foods um mm. what's that about if you could explain a bit about what that concept is sort of sp- supposed to be basically it's So, I mean, you have uh, kind of natural foods, so to speak. So that will just be like in its virgin state. And then you'll have processed foods, one level above where it's been altered. And then there are ultra processed foods where a number of different processed ingredients, processed foods have come together in one thing. I mean, it sounds very scary, but it literally is what happens when food is made and it is prepared for you. Or even when you prepare it in your kitchen, like... I mean, to be honest, when if you make a meringue yeah. and then make a custard and you make something else and you put it together in a trifle, that is an ultra-processed food. It so, also sounds delicious, but... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of scaremongering, and unfortunately, like, most of it comes from people who have a lot of time and resources to, you know, fuss around making everything from scratch, but that is not all of us. We're not all able to do that, and I think things like ready meals are wonderful, wonderful resource in our kind of time poor world I definitely agree and I think it's it's kind of unkind to make people feel bad for or we're all just trying to like feed ourselves the way we can none of us have enough time anyway (laughs) so tough especially if you've got like you know you might be working long hours you might have a disability there are a million different reasons why you might just rely on ready meals or whatever and that's fine yeah so I guess aside from all the political issues that you write about in your book, I want to ask you a bit about um, more like just the enjoying food side of it. And in particular with the recipes that you include. Mm-hmm. So how does it work with your recipe development? You must be experimenting all the time. Where do you start when you're trying to come up with things for a book? Um, I don't know. Like I sometimes I literally like will wake up in the night with like an idea for something in my head so it's, it's something that I'm always thinking about and it do you know what like food is kind of the love of my life in a way so I don't know I just I just I'm always thinking about it every now and again I'll eat something special and then I just kind of muddle my way through testing it in my own kitchen that's usually the hard bit how long does it take to get a recipe right um it depends what it is so lots of the stuff I've done in the past has been baking um, which obviously is really time-consuming in its own way. I'm actually testing a recipe today for some uh, like sticky blueberry buns. Yeah. But from start to finish, like because the bread has to rise and all of this, it takes about four hours. So it's a it's a long process. Right. And so after all that, you could have to start again or need to change something else. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's been lots of times when I've been up until like six in the morning. So yeah. yeah. You must have learned so much in your time practicing recipes for Bake Off. Well, mm. how did your sort of relationship with baking change from like what your the first um, episode that you recorded right through to the end? Do you know what? I think I actually lost some of the joy of it, actually. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's really tough, you know, doing something like that competitively. Like what I love about baking is that you're forced to take some time and it's really cathartic and you and there are all these tactile processes of touching and smelling and tasting. It's, I find it really, really healing. So when you're doing that competitively, it does take a little bit of the fun out of it. What uh, is one of your favourite recipes that you include in your book? 
Oh, it might be, so towards the end, there are some little dumplings and you, they're little uh, like chicken dumplings in it's like spicy, like Nepalese style spicy broth. And they're like little stuffed, almost like, you know, you have like Chinese style ones and they've got the little thin wrapper and the yeah. meat inside. And there's something really precious about individually making every one. And then, I don't know, it, it's lovely. They're all my babies. <laughs> How long does it take to make them? They sound quite labour intensive. Yeah, it's like I, I did include a little uh, note in the book that if you want to make them, you really do have to just set aside an afternoon. There's no like getting around that. Right. OK. So I guess um, people probably be interested to hear what you're up to next. So you've written this book and you've got a new mm-hmm. column in The Guardian. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what will you be um, writing about in there? So it's uh, every fortnight. So I share the column actually with uh, Tamal, who was also on Bake Off. So oh, he that's does so fun. Do the next week. It's nice. We've got a tag team going. Yeah. So that's yeah. a baking column, which is really lovely. It means I get to be back in the kitchen. But then apart from that, it's it's all about a bit up in the air at the moment. I'm doing a few events around the book. There's some in London and Bath. There's Norwich. So a few different places. And then yeah, I'm not really sure what what's coming next. So if people want to come and see you at one of these events, where can they find information for that? rubytando.com slash events. There's a little list that my girlfriend has very kindly kept up to date. I guess as someone like me personally, I feel like I'm on the way to recovering from um, having quite complicated issues with food. And it's just so inspiring that you've got yourself into a place where you're able to write this book and encourage people to um, improve their relationship with food. I'm just wondering whether you can reassure people who are listening that it is possible to come from a place of feeling so complicated, uh, like having such a complicated relationship and wanting to improve it, but not knowing where to start. Is it actually possible to, you know, to make yourself feel better? It is. It definitely is. I mean, I mean, first things first, I'd say like, if, if you haven't already done it, then it's so important to seek help. There's some figures about early intervention with eating disorders and people who get treatment within the first six months are so much less likely to relapse for the rest of their lives. So first of all, obviously, that's massively important. But do you know what? If you've not managed to do that, because I didn't manage to do that, it's just not It's not a death sentence. It doesn't have to be a death sentence. You know, like I had an eating disorder for so many years and it's a very slow process. And some days I still feel terrible about food and sometimes I feel bad about my body. But you, you find a way to make peace with your appetite and to enjoy the processes of cooking and eating and it gets to a point where you even find a little bit of joy in reaching to the back of the shelf in the mm-hmm. news agents and picking the coldest can of coke you know there's there's a lot to be enjoyed with food and you can find a way out so that was my skype conversation with ruby next up here's a little bonus track of our trip to the corner shops okay here you are 10 pound note Thank you. Um, and firstly, can you tell me about your relationship with newsagents and corner shops? I mean, I love a newsagent. I really do. I, they're just... Do you know what? You go in and I don't think there's any other shop where you go in and it's quite so, like, claustrophobically, like, colourful and amazing. It, and obviously you get all these childhood treats. I think it's fantastic. OK, so you can spend as much as you want right. within the, <laughs> within the right. realms of £10. OK. Uh, but if you can come back with three items, that would be three great. Three items. OK. OK, all right. I'm see gonna. you in a minute. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, so Ruby's just come back. She's given me some change and the receipt. So it says here, you've got Skittles, Freddy Faces and yeah. Transformer Snack. Yes. Uh, let's start with the Freddo. Right. Uh, well, I think the Freddo 
is important, right? I think it has a particular social significance for people our age, right? Because it started off at like 10p. Do you remember when it was like 10p? Yeah, I do remember it was 10p. And this was 30p. That's a triple. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> I remember when, so I have two other siblings, we could be given 50p and we'd go in and buy our sweets. Yeah, it's, um, it's devastating. <laughs> it really yeah. is. Um, can you remember any moments in your life where you just, only a Fredo would do? I mean, all the time, because I used to go to school, I used to walk every day, and it was maybe 40 minutes at one point on my way to secondary school, and I always would have like 50p a day that I'd spend on sweets. I shouldn't have spent that much on sweets every day, because I would get like five Freddos, really? and I'd just eat them like constantly. I was just so bored on the walk, it was anything to like distract yeah. me. Wow, so 50p's worth of sweets every yeah. day for how long? I mean... The time, the whole time that was at secondary school. I mean, to be honest, by the time I was in year eleven, I was probably spending like one pound fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Already, inflation had got me. But. That's such a good thing to be brought up on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Next up, we've got skittles. Um, uh, how come skittles? They're just fun, aren't they? Yeah. It's just it's, it's great stuff. Like, uh, I don't know. I'm quite a. Uh, I like to have fun with my food, playing with my food. I'm sure, yeah. like, if I was my own mum, I'd be furious with me because uh -huh. I like to like get all the skittles out, lay them out by colour. You know, like really, did, really making a fuss. Did the different colours have different flavours? Because I recently learned something about gummy bears. Oh. Um, that they're all exactly the same flavour. No, then. Yeah, not. they are. That's like blown me away. <laughs> I mean, I think these are different. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they are. On that note, though, I, I read this amazing thing about uh, wine, and these people who consider themselves wine connoisseurs were given white wine that had red food colouring in, and they right. were told, like, oh, this is red wine, what do you think of it? And they were like, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, just like the red wines I know, like, so much of it is in really? my hands. Yeah. Wow. I heard something before about these people, they were given, um, like honeycomb uh -huh. and some of them were played like this beautiful soft music while they were eating it and other people were played like this kind of jagged sounding like abrasive music and that it changed their completely changed their perception of what the flavor was some of them were like oh this is really sweet and lovely and others were like no this is bitter and horrible yeah actually that's something that you definitely cover in the book is about how the way you approach a food affects what it does to you physically yeah yeah, yeah. so can you tell us a bit more about that I mean, I, so part of this is just all about like this incredible link between your head and your body. Like it, we love to think that like we are just these like supreme logical beings that happen to have like these fleshy sacks attached to us. But you know, it's all one thing: the mind and the body. And like, if you're anxious about something you're going to eat, like for example, if you've read a million times like, oh, bread makes you heavy, bread makes you bloat, when you eat it by god you're gonna blow because you're stressed <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. It, it it happens okay and so last out of these three you know what um, i i saw these when i went in to get the cash out earlier, yeah and i was like i think she's gonna pick them <laughs> yeah do you know what this was a curiosity one these so what are these transform snacks yeah fearless spicy the flavor is apparently yeah so i mean it's, it's this hideous packet and there, there seem to be like little like a wheel and a chassis in here so you seem to be able to make a car out of these little snacks i'm not sure I'm do you want to sure. open it up and have a look yeah um so they're golden wonder which i thought had gone i thought there was a time when knickknacks were off the table. Oh my god, they <laughs> I love that smell. That's very good. That's like um monster munch. It is. Like... That was part of the reason why I got these because I've never actually had these before, but I, I wanted some kind of like dreadful, like puffy snack, a bit like monster munch, yeah, and this yeah. was the closest thing. And you're supposed to fit them together to make a car or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. I, 
I can't imagine that it will uh, run, but they taste really good. They're great. Yeah. They're absolutely great. Almost tropical. They're so like. They're, there's something fruity there, isn't there? It's, <laughs> it's disconcerting because they've definitely never touched a fruit. Yeah. Our mission. They're on a mission to bring the most heroic taste in the universe. You can make out of this world cars. You're experiencing wow. a fantastic flavor journey and a crunch that is on another planet. They're I mean, they're very not fried, so they're effectively fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thanks very much for going shopping for me. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.